Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the rise of liberal populism. And Richard, you recently wrote about the growing influence of populism within the Democratic Party. Before we dive into that topic as it's playing out today, let's start with the term. You can find aspects of American politics and political economy characterized as populism going back to the late 19th century. So what do we mean by that term and how does it relate to the arguments we're having today? Well, I think what happens is the term populism is designed to capture uh, those political movements that are trying to win the resentments of large portions of the population so as to get them to be willing to upset established institutions. And, you know, Wall Street, the railroads have always been the kinds of targets that the populists have. And their arguments are that far from being useful creations, uh, these particular organizations provide goods and services for which they exact more than a pound of flesh from everybody else. And so that the corporate influence that they represent has to be very powerfully checked. In some cases, it's by the antitrust laws. In some cases, it's by direct regulation. In some cases, by strong taxes and so forth. But the theory is you put the populace, that's the origin of the word populism, I think, on one side of the line and you take all the moneyed and property people and put them on the other. If you go back further in American history, there's this sort of dual irony. Um, if you follow the Aristotelian classifications that were still respected in 1787, although totally shattered by 1800, uh, our good friend Aristotle, followed by Madison and a lot of others, uh, said that there was a republic, which was an organization that was ordered. It was a group which had different houses representing different interest groups. Uh, they had deliberation processes to slow things down, and it was a deliberate effort to circumvent the dangers that popular majorities could exist on the population. Democracy for them was a form of demagogic situation in accordance with what Aristotle said. It was not just rule of the people. It was rule by a majority that would wipe out um, all of the property interests of other individuals. And Madison, when he wrote the Federalist Papers, was very insistent that if you don't have constitutional you know, protections, for example, you put a populist group in charge of government and they'll simply decree that all debtors need not pay their debts uh, under a form of debt relief statute, which was a huge issue throughout virtually all of the 19th century. So this is a very long problem in the United States. And, you know, my own inclinations are that if you believe in limited government and private property as I do, a populism turns out to be its complete antithesis. Okay, so let's walk through some of the areas where you're finding a populist trend at work today. One of them, of course, is liberal anxieties over economic inequality. This is, of course, really the core argument of the Bernie Sanders campaign, that the economy is rigged in favor of the wealthy and moneyed interests. Basically, the rich are getting richer. Everyone else is getting the shaft. How would Richard Epstein respond to Senator Sanders on that front? Well, it's, it's really an extremely pomp, you know, complicated question to figure out what's going on. And before you denounce the situation as one in which rich people have rigged the market, you'd have to ask him to point out the particular rules that he regards as rules that engaged in rigging. And let's just start with the tax system as a simple situation. There is no question in the United States that we have a very high corporate tax and that we have a relatively steep progressive tax. And we now have the excise tax on top of the progressive tax. Uh, so so 
if you look at the rich top 1%, it earns 19%. Uh, this is a funny number because getting in the top 1% means that you have, say, family income of around $400,000, and then it covers people to earn $400 million. And I got to tell you, the bottom half of the 1% and the top half of the one-tenth have nothing in common with one another. <laughs> uh, most of the people who are in the bottom of the 1% find it difficult to pay for private schools for their children if they live in New York City. And the guys who pull down $400 million don't even know that tuition is actually an expense that matters. So uh, you have to then explain why it is that if these people are so powerful and they rig the system in their favor, uh, they basically pay about 38 to 39% of the taxes, um, a huge proportion. But you have to understand is it's double the amount of taxes they have income, and it's more than the bottom 50% of the entire population pays. Uh, this, in effect, shows the strong influence of voting. Uh, property rights people will tend to favor flat taxes under which they'll still say a very large amount of money. Uh, but the large voting population loves progressive taxes because it puts the expenses on somebody else and lets them get the benefits because at the same time that we have higher taxes on the rich, we have on the distribution side fewer classic public goods like defense, which is now, say, 2 or 3% of the budget, and much more by way of transfer payments through Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, food stamps, earned income tax credit, and a thousand other things. If uh, the rich guys are winning this particular battle, they have a very strange way in um, expressing it. So that's the first point. The second point I think you want to ask is, why is it that wages stagnate at the bottom? And in order to do this, what you have to do is to look at the system of regulation. Uh, there is, in a traditional classical liberal low-tax economy, no gap between the amount of money that an employer pays and an employee receives, because what you do is you keep the relationships free as you possibly can, and then you just tax the residual income from both sides without upsetting the direct relationships. Uh, but the populists here are always interested in protections for workers, family leave protections, anti-discrimination protection, Obamacare protection, minimum wage protection, and so forth. It just goes on and on. Well, what that does is it changes the ratio. Now, if an employer wants to give a net wage of, say, $10 to an employee, you're going to have to pay 15 bucks. And so what happens is that gap means that it's going to drive down the base wages uh, that workers will be able to get because they're going to have to internalize through market mechanisms at least some fraction, say roughly half, of all the additional taxes that are imposed in the name of protection of the particular workers. And so I would expect wages to stagnate under these circumstances. And if you wish to improve them, what you have to do is to regulate, recognize that protection is terrific for the few workers who make it through all these hoops and get high wages and all of these gains. But for the many people who find that they can't get any work except maybe part-time work on a menial basis, um, this protection turns out to be ruinous to them. And yet the government people, when they look at this stuff, always talk about the fact that if you put another layer of protection in, all that will happen is that there'll be more money going to workers uh, than there were before. There would be no adaptive responses by employers uh, to the incentives that are created by these works. There'll be no offshore shipping. There'll be no substitution of automation uh, for labor or anything of that particular sort. And, of course, that's absolutely crazy. So these things start to happen. And then what they do is they say, well, we have to stop the automation. We have to stop the offshore stuff. We have to stop the irregular accountings or whatever particular vice 
class they identify, the net effect is to reduce, as is the case, the number of new businesses that start up, the amount of foreign investment that will come into the United States, and the willingness of existing firms to expand or to remain in business. It's not as though if you just simply close every release point that is available, firms are going to continue to operate. What's going to happen is that you will force many of them over the edge, some into bankruptcy, some into contraction, some into repositioning in the marketplace, some from moving about the United States, and you'll get exactly what you want. So Dr. Sanders knows nothing about the illness that he's talking about, and what he thinks to be a cure is, in fact, a prescription for further dislocation. You mentioned the minimum wage in there. We've just seen both California and New York enact what will eventually, because it's phased in, be a $15 minimum wage. How do you expect we're going to see that play out? Well, the first thing is that even the advocates of this are actually somewhat nervous about it. So it's not as though you're going to have a $15 minimum wage tomorrow. It's going to be phased in over a period of, say, four or five years. And one's hope is that the economy will sufficiently recover during that period, that market wages will get closer and closer to that $15 period, so the dislocations will be relatively slight. On the other hand, there's absolutely no reason whatsoever to expect that to happen. Uh, The first thing to note is we are now, generally speaking, in a deflationary period. And when you have deflationary periods, you're not going to get large uh, price increases or wage increases that could offset the results of the minimum wage. And the second thing is that there's nothing about the minimum wage law that has induced anybody to get rid of all of these other obstacles to employment. So they're also in place, which means that if you actually look at what's going to happen, anybody who now is, say, earning 12 or $13 an hour is much more likely to be sacked and to have to go into some kind of marginal part-time existence in a shadow economy than to be boosted up to that particular amount. I did some calculations a couple of years ago when the buzzword was $10.10, which is a you know basically one-third off of what the current price is. And I tried to guess what would happen to workers below that level. And essentially what happens to them is if even 10% of these people are fired and the other 90% climb aboard, uh, the gains of one or $2 per hour is not going to be decisive, but the loss of a $13 an hour income is going to be. Uh, so what you predict is what always happens with these things. There'll be a greater sort of diversion between those lucky enough to climb over the barrier and those who are wiped out. And that on aggregate, the total amount of money through the wage system that goes to the uh, displaced workers will be so small that in the end, workers as a group are probably not going to be benefited by this. And it's only the sort of the constant preaching of the government types uh, that assumes that whatever the government wants, the government will get, will do that. You read the campaign literature on the economy by either Hillary Clinton on the one hand or Bernie Sanders on the other hand, and you want to pull your hair out because what they do is they see every remedy that they're in favor of as essentially being a no-risk, no-downside situation. Whereas everybody who knows anything about regulation realizes that you may be able to help some, but you always have to ask whether or not in the backwash from all of this situation, you're going to hurt others. And if you're not aware of the nature of these particular trade-offs, you'll never make the right uh, calculations, and you'll be all too gung-ho on running this system. If Sanders gets elected and, God forbid, gets to implement this program, there'll be a massive uh, dislocation in the United States. Clinton is a pragmatist. She says many of the same things, doesn't quite believe them. Uh, She would be a mere disaster as opposed to a total catastrophe. (laughs) When When you talk about populist economics, 
one of the things that has come to signify is an opposition to trade, or, or at least some people might say support for fair trade over free trade. The idea here is that you open us up to international competition, and American labor is going to get underbid, and there are going to be a lot of lost jobs as a result. And we know, especially from Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump's success this time around, that those kinds of arguments have some currency right now. Are they wrong, Richard? Well, they have huge currency. There's no question about it. But I think what happens is they miss the essential advantage of free trade. If you look at the internal labor markets in the United States, they really are organized in a very poor way. Um, at this point, it's almost impossible to see any direct attack on these things taking place uh, through Congress, uh, given the fact that the even a liberal minority can block it. And it's not going to happen in the states that really need it, like California and New York and Illinois, because they have very heavy elements of democratic control. What free trade does is exposes these weakness. Um, now, in effect, when people start to leave, if you can't block their exit, what you may do is say, physician, heal thyself. I'll look at your labor arrangements and see whether or not you can make some fix that gets rid of the exodus. That's what happens when you introduce right-to-work laws. Unions now realize that they're in danger, and what they do is they engage in activities that make them more attractive to workers who have an exit option. So the exit option is nonspecific. Um, in terms of the way in which it operates. And so it therefore doesn't target this or that ill. But by being nonspecific, it exposes every single domestic inefficiency uh, to relentless competition and leads to internal correction. If you kill the free trade, uh, what happens is all of the internal imperfections only will get worse. And remember, if you look at the Obama administration and its basic notion that it wouldn't increase taxes and it would magically get us growth at, say, 3.5%, well, growth has been about 15 to 2%, roughly the equivalent of population um, increases. Median income in real terms has actually declined fairly substantially during this period. These are not surprises. It's not that some people get rich that make these things happen. It's that the people who aren't rich are subject now to a whole series of barriers. And to put the point in its simplest form, every time you put a restriction on the way in which an employer can make an offer to an employee, you reduce the options not only of the employer, but also of the employee to whom he might otherwise um, address offers. And what you really need to do is to get this thing moving. And the only way you can do that is to eliminate these transactional barriers. And so the preferred solution is in the eyes of people like Sanders and perhaps even Hillary Clinton. The preferred solution is the devil himself. And if you have this warped perception of the way in which an economy works, uh, it is only a recipe for long-term institutional disaster. President Obama does not, in my view, any understand any of these issues, but at least he's a soft-spoken guy, and these people are much more militant upon it, and in effect, they think that the problem of Obama is, much as he's done to wreck the economy on these points, he hasn't done enough to fix it in their eyes, so they want stronger stuff in the same direction. So essentially what you're seeing is a radicalized public thinking that the progressive agenda failed, not because it was too ambitious, but because it was not ambitious enough. Okay, so last question I'll put to you then, to that point. Um, purely speculative, by the way, Richard. That's okay. Is this trend towards populism? Uh, do you regard this as cyclical or secular? Are we going to be living with this for a while? Or are we going to sort of snap back to something closer to the status quo ante? 
Boy, if I only wish. I can remember years ago when Ronald Reagan broke the air controller strikes. One of my learned colleagues in law said, this is the last we will ever see of the naive views in America uh, that you can get improvement through Labor Party action of one kind or another. Well, obviously, we're a long way removed from Reagan. And I would hope that things would start to switch back the other way. What I think is distinctive about the American population, which makes it so difficult to call, is if you're looking at the judiciary, you're looking at the Congress, you're looking at the public, it turns out that the middle has emptied out. Uh, You have strong conservatives, some on religious grounds, some on economic grounds, um, some on military grounds. You have militant folks on the other side, but the uh, Clinton winning coalition, which I think was a stable coalition for America, at least in the hands of a president who had a little bit more common sense intact, was essentially a centrist coalition which tilted slightly to the left. Um, And remember, Clinton was frightened about the bond market and he gave free trade reforms and welfare reforms and so forth. You know, that's completely gone. And in fact, we know this because if you look at some of the signal uh, reforms of the Clinton years, bipartisan like the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and so forth and DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, each of these have been wildly repudiated by the American left. And the American right, when it tries to defend them, is now branded as fascist or worse. So the reason why it's so hard to do this is if the center is unstable and will not hold, it's very difficult to figure out which of these two masses on the extreme will take power. And it's It turns out that very small shifts in electoral votes could lead to very large shifts in power. If you get a presidency um, by side by, say, 51-49 or whatever that particular number is, it's an enormous stake. There's nothing in common between, say, Hillary Clinton and Ted Cruz. Uh, Donald Trump, I don't think, could win the presidency. I think he's too crazy even for crazies in one way or another. But you just have to understand, how could you make a prediction when an election like that may well be a month before it happens too close to court? Um, You look at virtually every state, say Wisconsin, where they had this right to work stuff that we talked about last week. It's a heavily polarized state. You get recall motions on the one hand to remove the governor, and then you get people singing his hosanna and praises. That's the state of America today. There's nobody in the middle. And if there's nobody in the middle, it's just very difficult to figure out which way the boat will tilt when it turns out that the waves start to rise. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter, at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.